1: This week on P.A. Books, Ellen Williams, author of Out of the Woods.
0: Ellen Williams is the author of the book Out of the Woods, From Deerfield to the Grand Circuit. Now the trotting horse is central to the story that you tell in your book. Uh, What is a trotting horse?
1: A trotting horse is uh, a blend of other breeds, The, the legs, the front and back leg, will uh, come together in a gait at the time that the legs on the opposite side are reaching front and back. Um, So it's a smooth gait and it's a fast gait and it can carry on that gait for some length of time.
0: Now is this gait something that is developed through breeding or through training?
1: It's generally both. Um, My book concentrates on horses that were bred from other bloodlines of horses, um, specifically because they would naturally do that. And then when they began to, in the past, um, breed uh, a mare who would naturally trot with a stallion, who would naturally trot, um, it became a dominant trait in those families of horses. All horses can trot. Um, Some do it better and more smoothly than others.
0: Now, the time period that you talk about from the mid to the late 1800s, uh, you know, you talk about as kind of a golden age of, of uh, harness racing and, and the golden age of the trotting horse. So wh- why did that horse emerge at that particular time?
1: Well, um, as America developed better roads, especially in the Northeast, a lot of this action uh, happened in the North Northeast Coast, um, Long Island, and New York, as The cities became more connected and better roads um, became available in the US. Uh, People wanted to get everywhere faster. And um, a galloping horse that would pull a stagecoach was very rough. It gave a rough ride. Um, So people were interested in in getting everywhere faster um, by wagon. And um, so that horse that could trot smoothly and over a long distance maintain that nice gait um, became something to strive for.
0: Do we know why the the area in the Hudson Valley, in New York, uh, Long Island was the the kind of, as you call it, the cradle of the trotter?
1: Well, the reason why probably stems from a batch of men that had access to the good horses that were first being imported into the U.S. Um, We know um, that Paul Revere, for instance, during the Revolution, um, the little mare that he rode uh, on his famous ride um, was called a Narragansett Pacer. So she was a gated horse who could also um, keep up a pretty good clip uh, smoothly enough to ride or ride behind. Um, So those horses were just, they were in the Northeast first because that's where the English thoroughbreds that um, they bred
0: were introduced first on the East Coast in Philadelphia and New York. I use the term pacer, and and in the book (laughs) you talk about the difference. Some horses are trotters and some are pacers. Uh, What's that distinction?
1: A pacer is a horse that, um, for instance, on his uh, right uh, front foot and his right hind foot will move parallel together at the same time. So both of those feet will be front while the other uh, left side front and back leg will uh, be back. And then they will move in in, uh, tandem like that. A trotter is an opposite gait where the front leg and the hind leg are coming together. Um, almost sometimes overlapping uh, so the hoofs might touch each other on that side and then on the opposite side of the horse the horses for instance left side that front leg is reaching forward while the hind leg is extending backward
0: so while the uh, while new york was the cradle of the trotter uh, eventually uh, the area that you talk about in tioga county became a a center of uh, of trotting horses as well Uh, how, how did that movement happen
1: Well, that was one of the interesting things that I tried to um, answer the question of in my writing. Um, The area was known uh, in northern Pennsylvania and western New York um, as a lumber region, really, more than um, agriculture or any other thing. It certainly wasn't known for horses um, at the time of the Civil War, for instance. Um, But when um, a man named Oliver Wood, who was a farmer, uh, he brought a pedigreed, um, trotting colt, a young stallion. Um, When he migrated from New Jersey, his home in the Hudson Valley, into this lumber region, he brought this colt with him. And um, While he was in a a country, very uh, rural region, this pocket of uh, lumber, hardwood that was not even connected with railroad or or particularly well-connected for agriculture, either. Um, This one stallion sort of became a pocket of trotting culture in that local region that was very close to the New York border uh, with Western New York.
0: So was Oliver Wood involved in horse breeding uh, in New York? What what kind of business was he in?
1: Uh, In New York, in uh, Minnesink, which was in Orange County, um, he was a dairy farmer. And Orange County uh, generally was known uh, as a dairy County. They had very uh, perfected the art of making very good quality butter. Most of them made it on their farms uh, before the Civil War. Dairy farmers were milking herds of uh, Channel Island cattle, Jerseys, Guernseys. Um, Ayrshire's and they were producing a very high quality butter for shipment uh, promptly into New York City And they were doing well with that. So he was a dairy farmer I found no evidence that he had been particularly interested in horses before his move to Tioga
0: County Now this colt that you were talking about Dan who had become very famous during this time period uh, He was known as a Hambletonian. What, what does that mean?
1: Hambletonian is a name uh, that originated um, with a, a horse a couple of generations before, Oliver Woods' horse. Um, and that horse was bred in Orange County also um, by a man named Jonas Seely. And the beginning of the story is, is found, and I was inspired uh, by, by this children's book by Marguerite Henry. And Marguerite Henry wrote a number of children's books in the 50s and 60s. And she wrote *Misty of Chincoteague*, which is the most well-known of her books. But she also wrote another one called *Born to Trot*. And in that story, she talks about um, a man named Jonas Seely who had this Hamiltonian trotting horse, and the horse was named Hamiltonian. And it was purchased by Jonas Seely's hired man, who was a, a Dutchman named William Rizdick, and Rizdick was the man who developed that horse into the foundation sire of the hambletonian and also of the trotting uh, bloodlines in the u.s
0: Uh, once uh, oliver came to this area of northern pennsylvania was he using dan to uh, for work on the farm Uh, what was he intending to use this horse for
1: well that was one of my uh, original questions that i sought to answer in the story um Oliver Wood um, is a fifth-generation ancestor of mine, so growing up in my family, I had many relatives, and the story was still alive in my childhood. There were snippets of the story that were there, Um, and we weren't really sure. By the time that I was a child and we were talking about the stories, there were really only a couple of uh, artifacts that remained um, in our family that I could access. One was an oil painting that had been done sometime in the 1870s of the stallion, and another was a breeding card advertisement from the 1880s, and those were about the only um, items that I had to start with um, with my story. So it had somewhat fallen into like a legend type of category where there's a snippet of a story, but when it comes right down to it, you can't really um, tell a lot of details. You can't prove the story with um, something more concrete in the culture.
0: As he began to develop Dan as a breeding horse, uh, what uh, what would, what was the thing that made him so famous?
1: He, he brought the stallion uh, as a two-year-old to Pennsylvania from New York. And we really aren't sure Um, at the the beginning, and this was one of my questions when I started the story, weren't really sure whether um, Oliver Wood, who was a man past 60 at the time that he made his move, um, which is a little bit on the old side for a farmer to migrate that distance um, to start afresh. Um, We weren't really sure what his intentions were for the stallion. The stallion was about two years old when he came, um, and during the Civil War, there was not much going on Um, by way of breeding, there wasn't a lot of money, there wasn't a lot of stability. So uh, things were very quiet during the Civil War, it wasn't until the end of the Civil War um, in the Count Valley when the colts that had been sired by the stallion began to perform very well and very fast on all the little local tracks that there were. And so then it seemed like the Wood family, uh, Oliver and his sons and their neighbors and friends, began to realize that this horse was something special um, and began to market the horse's name uh, more actively at that point after the Civil War.
0: So one of the horses that uh, he sired was Kilburn Jim. Uh, who, Who was he?
1: Kilburn Jim was the first horse that made it into the level of racing called the Grand Circuit. And this was about 1871, 1872. Again, um, Kilburn Jim was bred by a neighbor of Mr. Woods uh, who had fought in the Civil War. young man came home. Um, he had a little bit of money in his pocket and he had a mare and he went to Mr. Wood and, and had a colt um, as a result of the, the breeding of the horse. And um, Mr. Kilburn uh, developed this horse and began to um, put him uh, into Western New York State, which is not that far away from the PA um, New York border where this action took place. He took him to uh, Western New York where there were plentiful, a lot of little tracks up in Western New York State in uh, uh, Chemung and Steuben counties. and the horse began to do really well. And at that point, um, they knew they were really onto something and the horse got a name, Kilburn Jim, uh, from his owner's name, Jonas Kilburn. And that horse was the first horse in this family of horses to achieve the two minute and 30 second mile time in a trotting sanctioned race to make it into the record books. So he was the first achiever to get the family of the Woods Hamiltonian horse registered into that group.
0: So you mentioned the the Grand Circuit uh, for the trotting horses. Uh, how many how many racetracks were involved in that?
1: Um, in the 1870s, there were about four or five. Um, there was uh, Buffalo, New York; uh, Utica, uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Um, hmm, let's see. Um, in Connecticut was uh, I can't think a Charter Oak. Um, Sorry, I can't think of the one in Connecticut. Um, and, and there was one in New York City and one in Philadelphia. So there were about five or six. And the idea was that these were um, various venues that um, were, were spread around the Northeast. So it would be like a train type of circuit where the horses could move and be registered for all five races. And you could follow that horse through the summer um, as to where he would go and, and how that horse would do. So they were, they were big level races.
0: So let's talk about the racing itself. Uh, this was harness racing, right? So they were, Correct. they didn't have a, a jockey riding them, right? Correct.
1: <clears throat> yes. Um, harness racing is different in that the, the driver does not sit on the horse's back and the horse does not run flat out like we see in the Kentucky Derby um, type of racing, which is called thoroughbred racing or running racing as they used to call it. Um, Harness racing is very different, and in the harness races, the horse is supposed to trot or pace. They're not supposed to gallop. They're not supposed to run flat out. If they do, they get disqualified. So this is where the fellow, the driver, at that time was usually a man, um, sits in a two-wheeled rig for the race.
0: Now You mentioned the the two-and-a-half-minute kind of standard for these races. Uh, how did that become the, the standard for, for this type of horse?
1: When the uh, National Association of Trotting Horses began to keep record books, again, that was in the, um, in the 1850s, they started organizing as a sport and to keep record books and to keep stud books of the stallions and the performances of the races. Um, when they started, they would um, adapt their... Bylaws, as far as the rules under which a horse could be registered with their organization, those bylaws changed from time to time, and they, at some point in the 1860s, I, I may have that, you know, date uh, a little off. I'm not sure, but at some point they they settled on that mile, um, two minute and 30 second mile as their standard, which it remained. Um, for the entry of other horses to make it into, like a mare or a stallion, to make it into that record book.
0: So let's go back to Kilburn Jim. Uh, how long did he race? He only
1: raced for a season and a half. Um, he was the very first horse to make it into the, to the big time. Unfortunately, he was um, probably a casualty of the traveling and the rigors of this kind of sport so he he only raced on the on the big time in the grand circuit for uh, part of one summer and and in the summer of 1872 and he died in the fall
0: of 1872 he had been raced very hard that summer did his success lead people to seek out oliver wood
1: yes it absolutely did Um, he was able to be registered into the record books um, with a win that he made um, in the summer of 1872 with his, um, with his time. And with that, he was able to, um, under the rules of the association, which I referred to earlier, um, he was able to usher his sire, which was Woods Hambletonian, into the same rec- record books. So then at that point in 1872, Woods Hambletonian was officially registered as um, number 572, and his son Kilburn Jim was registered with the number 571. So Kilburn Jim, the son of the, of the stallion, got in first, and then the stallion um, that belonged to Woods, which was known as Woods Hambletonian, got in right behind him with a consecutive number. Um, and after that, people began to flock to Mr. Wood for um, a piece of
0: the horse. Now you mentioned the rigors of travel that Kilburn and Jim endured. Uh, how, how did the horses travel from track to track?
1: During those years, um, and the peak of the Grand Circuit years, um, they traveled by rail, and um, it was a very—they um, would—they would race the horses on a say a weekend. They would put them in a race on. At a race meet in Buffalo and then they'd send them to Utica and then they'd send them back to Buffalo and then to Rochester. Then they might be in Cleveland. So over the course of three weeks, a horse might make those four cities um, in a loop and then maybe go back to Connecticut. So it was hundreds of miles on a rail car.
0: So were horses at that time, if they were successful, did they have fans who would show up just to see that horse?
1: They certainly did. Um, and in the book, um, there's a story about Kilburn Jim who had some fans um, that were following him um, up to Rochester and Buffalo and Utica. And if they could get there, it was just very much like a NASCAR or, or the NFL. Um, NASCAR is a little easier to identify in terms of, of a racing spectator sport, but for sure. Um, they were in the newspapers. Um, so people would watch the the race column in the newspaper. They would know where the horse was uh, going to appear next, the next following weekend. If they could get off, they would they would get a ticket to the races and um, travel by rail. Again, a lot of the people were traveling by rail to go see the races.
0: So you mentioned the coverage in the newspapers. Uh, were sports riders covering harness racing the way that today they may cover uh, auto racing?
1: Very much the same. The racing column in the paper uh, took up you know, a, a really good amount of, of the space. Um, at that time, um, baseball was just maybe coming on. There was no NFL. Um, so it was, bicycles came along during that era, but it was, um, it was the premier spectator sport from probably after the Civil War un, until 1910 or 1920.
0: Another horse that, uh, uh, that came out of uh, Dan's lineage was Nancy Hackett. Uh, what made her special?
1: Nancy Hackett was in what I call the second wave of of the offspring of Woods Hambletonian's um, progeny. And she was a mare um, who was a roan, which is a speckled horse, and she was supposedly very small, according to um, the sports writers. Nancy Hackett became significant in the story um, because I virtually discovered her when uh, a relative, a distant cousin of mine, began to clean out an attic, and brought a stereopticon card of of a horse uh, hitched up to a high wheeled sulky, and on the back someone had written her name, and the date, and the name of the woods. So um, that's how I discovered Nancy Hackett initially. She was. Uh, a few years after Kilburn Jim, in terms of uh, her performances on the Grand Circuit, and she was very, very fast. She got a 220 mile. Instead of a 230, she uh, cropped about 10 seconds off, and she got a 220, which at that time in 1878 was very, very fast. She was a very lucrative horse.
0: Now, for horses that uh that can go fast, like, like Nancy, were, were they uh, allowed to continue to compete against other horses? Uh, you know, you do talk about uh, some, some who kind of moved into exhibition status.
1: In the book I explain how a horse who is clocked at a sanctioned meet at a certain time is not supposed to be entered in, a, in another sanctioned meet after that in a slower class. So the classes were set up to have Faster horses, slower horses. So you have a 240 class, a 230 class, a 225 class, a 220 class. Um, so that you were um, ensuring that the horses were at their performance level, not just um, one horse is going to be able to go uh, way faster than the rest in the class. So that's that's how that was working. You weren't really supposed to enter. And everybody was watching everybody else. So they, that's how they <laughs> stayed. Um, pretty honest. Um, so you weren't supposed to enter um, a horse that had already won uh, a 220 class, for instance. You weren't supposed to enter that horse in a 230 or a 240 class because, you. you and I think that's where the word outclassed came from. Um, so you weren't supposed to do that.
0: Now, Nancy Hackett was eventually injured during a race. What happened?
1: She was. Um, and the circumstances of that were um, a little bit sad for me to uncover. Um, she had a very brief summer in the sun, which was 1878. She made her personal record, um, so she was able to be uh, entered into the Harness Racing Association record books based on her performance of 220. And she became very well known. Um, the The sad part was in in Utica, New York, she was Uh, supposed to race on a particular day. And the race got extended due to various circumstances into the evening. There were accusations that she had been held back by her driver, that her driver had been bribed. Um, There was another horse who supposedly had a very um, dishonest kind of uh, following, uh, and they would do things to other horses or, or try to sabotage them in some way. What really happened um, to Nancy Hackett we will maybe never know. I had to go ahead and put my options out in the book, uh, my choices of, of what I think happened to her. She either slipped in the mud on her own or she may have been driven recklessly. But at any rate, there was a cheating going on the day before, the overnight, and the following day. There was cheating uh, that happened in her class with her competitors. There was bribing of drivers and things like that, which did happen um, when there was gambling involved. And so that's how she got injured.
0: How common was cheating during these races?
1: Cheating was quite common, unfortunately. Um, There were... Uh, a number of different ways that people could gamble, um, especially at the Grand Circuit level and the the higher level uh, circuits. They would sell pools, which I explain how that was all working uh, in the book. But many times, um, the pools that people were betting the money on, there was more money in the gambling uh, pool than there was the purse that the horse was winning for whatever placing he would end up with in his class. So um, definitely um, when you had those lucrative pool sellers um, and wagering going on, um, there was a reason then, a motivation for folks to, to try to uh, bribe certain drivers or to um, influence the outcome of those races. It was very, very common at the time.
0: Now, Oliver Wood, when he moved to northern Pennsylvania, he, w- he was an older man. Uh, was, was he the only owner of Dan, or, to, or was Dan passed down to, uh, to one of his children?
1: Oliver Wood was the man who first purchased the colt uh, as a two-year-old and who brought him when he came. But um, he passed him on to his sons. Um, Oliver Wood had several sons. And in the course of the years, the horse, the stallion, Woods Hambletonian, who was also known as Old Dan, So I just wanted to clarify that at home, they always called the horse Old Dan or Dan. Um, But for the record books, um, they called him Woods Hambletonian. So whenever we talk about him, it's the same horse. Um, But then at some point in the late 1870s, um, when older Mr. Oliver Wood um, was retiring and getting out of the uh, agricultural, the farming and and the horse uh, breeding business, his sons uh, took over Sometimes I found them on the records as uh, in it together as a twosome. He had two sons, William Wood and another son named Joseph Wood. Um, and so those two men seemed to take ownership of the stallion and they were working together um, with the stallion on his breeding career at that farm.
0: So was this breeding enterprise with old Dan, was it, was it profitable for them?
1: Without the access to their financial ledgers, which I think are long swept from someone's attic, I I don't know exactly how much. I do know that they were raising tobacco, they were raising, um, they always had a dairy of cattle, they were doing other things too. So they had a subsistence farm and a production grain farm which uh, was also in full swing during these years. There must have been either a pride in horse ownership uh, or, uh, you know, being part of the current fashion, part of the current trend in the rage in sport. There was a, definitely a popularity there. Um, so there was probably definitely a sideline coming in. Um, those things I tried to sort of interpret from the agricultural census records, um, but I didn't, I didn't necessarily use financial records because I didn't have access to those. Um, so I had to go with other things. So I, either they loved horses and they loved being part of the whole sport or it was a good sideline.
0: Now, another prominent uh, stud in their community was Warwick Boy. Uh, who was he and who was his owner?
1: in Tioga County, which is where this um, horse story is centered. And and I might want to point out to you that there are two Tioga counties. There is a Tioga County, Pennsylvania, which is where uh, this story takes place. And then a couple of counties uh, over the border into New York, uh, around uh, the the area of Binghamton and Owego. There's another Tioga County, and that's in New York. So I just wanted to distinguish that we're talking about Tioga County, Pennsylvania. in the village of Tioga, which was about 18, uh, 18, less than 20 miles from where Oliver Wood was. There was another fancy uh, stud horse who was a, a trotting, had a trotting pedigree, very similar to Wood's Hamiltonian. And he was owned by some other men in the village of Tioga. And there was some friendliness there. There was definitely uh, patronage by many of the same clients. Um, and it ended up that there was a bit of a rivalry as well, which uh, sort of propels part of the story along.
0: Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that rivalry, write about how they, they wrote dueling, that Joseph Wood and uh, T.J. Barry would write dueling letters to the editor in, in the paper. What, what were they arguing about?
1: <laughs> Correct. Um, one of the interesting things that I found was that um, back then they, they would... Um, much like, you know, two guys will get into a scuffle at a NASCAR track and then, uh, you know, their social media and TV will, will you know, sort of publicize and feed the, the quotes and the energy out of whatever dispute that is. Um, this was very much the same kind of thing, where um, there was some kind of a dispute over a horse race um, in Tioga in 1877, and it had to do with a dis- some kind of... Um, some race that went haywire between offspring of the two stallions, the offspring of Warwick Boy and the offspring of Woods Hambletonian. And the men got into a tiff. And there was a paper called The Spirit of the Times, which was um, very much a horsey, news-dominated sports paper, and it was a weekly. It was very popular in the Northeast during those years. And of course, um, as was very typical in the time, they would use that as their venue for, you know, venting their frustrations or their feelings on uh, what was going on. So the, I uncovered a, a very colorful span of letters in the in the early spring, late winter, early spring of 1878 between the two men, uh, Joseph Wood, the son of Oliver Wood, and uh, Warwick Boys owner uh, Thomas J Barry, and they were basically trash-talking one another, uh, having to do with um, things that had been said on the racetrack about each other's colts, and who was better, and who was charging more for a stud fee, and and these kinds of things that ended up, they challenged one another in the paper to match races, um, which as far as I could find, never took place. But they definitely kept the paper warm during the winter when there was no racing.
0: Uh, you mentioned match races. Uh, what, what type of race is that?
1: A match race was a little different than um, than a local county fair or uh, a Grand Circuit race. And that was when either someone would arrange a match race for a, a specific payout between two horses. So if um, there was a very good horse in a neighborhood and someone else said, well, I, th- I think my horse can beat you and I think people would, would pay to come and watch these two square off together, just just one on one. That would be called a match race. So sometimes an owner would challenge another owner um, to just go one one against one. I, I guess you might call it like a, like a drag race now, where there's only two competitors and there is a prize at the end. Sometimes each. Um, Sometimes they would split a purse. Um, sometimes uh, they would the, the winner would win more money than the other. So that was a, sort of an interesting variation.
0: Were match races included uh, at the racetrack with other events?
1: Sometimes they were and um, you had mentioned earlier um, with regard to uh, horses that were outclassed horses that were way way better and way faster. Uh, than others. So sometimes that would happen in the middle of a grand circuit race, for instance, there would be the classes that would be scheduled and then there would be some kind of specialty race that would um, put two horses uh, against each other, two very well-known horses, and maybe they were both too fast to race against uh, the others in the in the normal race meet. Uh, sometimes there would just be one horse who was so much better and so much faster than everybody. Um, and he would just race, uh, do an exhibition race, and he would just get paid a flat fee uh, to race against the clock. And so that was sort of a variation that would sort of um, offer the audience
0: in the race park some variety during that meet. Uh, Well, let's talk a little bit more about uh, some of the other offspring of old Dan. Uh, Nancy Hackett, who we talked about previously, had a brother named Argonaut. Uh, What kind of a horse was he?
1: Argonaut was, Argonaut was another horse um, like Nancy Hackett, he was uh, called a full brother. So for those that are maybe not familiar with the way the horse breeding world was working back then, um, a horse like a a stallion of this caliber at the time was breeding usually um, between 60 to 70 mares in a summer. So there would be a a crop of foals that was owned by a number of different owners come the following year. But Argonaut and Nancy Hackett were full siblings, which means that um, the dam, which is called the mare, uh, the mare is called the dam. Uh, the mother of the two horses was the same, so she was some uh, mare that was probably owned by the Woods, and so they were breeding her back to Woods hambletonian a number of different years. So Argonaut was um, he had good genetics, and once his sister Nancy Hackett. Uh, began to kick up the dust on the racetracks. Um, the Woods knew that the younger brother was still at home uh, and he had not really gotten out and had a chance to show his stuff yet and what he could perform on the racetracks. So um, he also did very well for the Woods, and both Nancy Hackett and Argonaut were initially owned by the Woods and then um, probably sold um, once they. Reached a, a good value as a result of their performances.
0: Now, when we think of horse racing, uh, we we think of Kentucky. That uh, it seems to be a center of, of both breeding and uh, and the racing itself. How did how did Kentucky uh, horsemen react to horses coming out of northern Pennsylvania?
1: Uh, Kentucky has always been um, very proud of their uh, culture of thoroughbred running horses, and also. Um, standard bred trotting horses after a certain point. And the story which takes place in the chapter about um, Mamie Wood, a horse named Mamie Wood, uh, and that was in the 1880s. So she was a little later than Nancy Hackett, later than Kilburn Jim. She represented the, the 1880s decade, if you will, of the progeny of, of these, this stallion. And this horse named Mamie uh, Wood, began to trot very, very well. And she attracted the attention of Kentucky uh, breeders uh, down in Louisville. And um, they challenged her to come down and and race against their colts. And she did very well, and and she did win. And the New York, uh, the man in Elmira, New York, in western New York, who owned her, was very, very proud. The, the men in Western New York were very, very proud when Nancy, ha- um, excuse me, not Nancy Hackett, when Mamie Wood um, went to Louisville and was able to, uh, they called it, I think, uh, dust uh, a crop of their Kentucky colts or something like that in the, in the heart of the bluegrass, like going, going to Louisville and sort of um, showing them up. Um, so
0: th- there was a, that rivalry, I believe, was quite friendly. Now uh, she would later, Mimi Wood would have later, be owned by R.J. Reynolds as a pretty significant owner.
1: Correct. Um, he he bought her. Um, R.J. Reynolds did not come to New York uh, or Pennsylvania to buy Mimi Wood directly, but as was often the case, these horses, um, when they began to achieve on the racetrack, they were sold multiple times, and Mimi Wood uh, was bought by. Uh, a wealthy fellow in Kentucky. And he had a large stable of horses, but then within a year or two, um, I think she was bred to the stallion there, which was a very um, popular stallion. And before she foaled her foal, uh, which it takes 11 months for a mare to carry a foal, full term, before she even um, gave birth to her foal, RJ Reynolds, who was buying up tobacco processing plants at that time around Louisville, he he was there. And he bought her and took her to um, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, for a time.
0: Now, one of Oliver's sons uh, was O.H. Wood, and you write that he was—he was a wheeler and dealer in land, cattle, and horses. It Seems to be a bit of a character.
1: Yes, um, O.H. Wood—I um, I call him O.H. like O. Period H. Period. Um, he was also named Oliver Wood, and he was one of the older sons of. The elder Oliver Wood, who came, and um, he he was very um, a very different kind of uh, sibling than than the two brothers Joseph and William, who ended up with um, the stallion at the main farm. O. H. Wood was a, a different kind of fellow, and he was very adventurous uh, financially and in a lot of his business dealings. He was. Uh, very he surrounded himself with interesting characters of various reputations. He was very interested in racing and he had a lot of gambling friends. Uh, who, they all loved fast horses and fast living, and they, they did things a little differently than the woods who lived uh, on the main farm. And so there was a, quite a bit of color that was brought into the storyline. Uh, from the direction of O.H. Of Wood and his, his friends and associates and the horses that they wanted to deal with and what they wanted to do with horses and how they wanted to handle the horses was a little different than what um, William and Joseph Wood um, wanted to do with their stallion.
0: Now, uh, Dan was called Old Dan. Uh, how long did he live?
1: He lived to be Almost 30 years old. He he died um, just before his 30th birthday, which is a pretty mature age for a stallion at, at any in, during any age. Um, 30 years is a good long life for a horse. Um, you know, it, it can vary a great deal, but that means that he had good feet and good teeth, and he was well taken care of. If he's going to live to be 30.
0: Now, were these trotting horses, or were they only used for racing, or were they used as well for work on a farm or in the lumber industry?
1: That's a really interesting question that I did have to sort of um, educate myself about in terms of writing the story, because a trotting horse that's a fast horse is, has a number of functions. It can perform very uh, quickly and, and earn you money on the racetrack. But it also can, um, you know, pull your um, your delivery wagon around town at a pretty good clip. It can take your family visiting on Sunday. Um, it can plow your fields. A, a horse like this can plow your fields. Um, but there were definitely um, the the angle of bringing in other breeds and and draft breeds. That were also, there were draft mares that were brought to um, Woods Hambletonian to get a cross which suited uh, the frugal farmers in that region even better because it was never um, Tioga County and in the rural area where the horse lived, his life was never the center of harness racing. So, around there, the center of life was lumber and agriculture. And so, th- most men needed a horse who could, who could plow a field and haul lumber all winter long and also take your family out on the road and, and you know, be a good wagon horse. And that horse was usually a little better achieved by crossing the spirited, um, warmer-blooded standard bred type of horse with a draft type of horse to get a, a crossbred there that could trot but also had... A little bit of uh, more calmness and maybe a little more bulk for heavy work.
0: Now you mentioned in the book that the, the region where the woods lived, uh, that they, that uh, citizens up there created a vigilance association for the prevention of horse stealing. Was horse thievery uh, an issue in that area?
1: At certain times, I think it was. Apparently, I found this article, um, and I'm, I'm not sure which year that was, I I can recall, but you you read the book more recently than I did. Um, I think it was around um, the late 1860s. And uh, the late 1860s, right after the Civil War, um, would have been a fairly um, free-for-all, if we we might say that, use that word, like a a free-for-all kind of time, where um, the local sheriff could do what he could do, but... um, a lot of times there was a special like a horseman's brotherhood or a subscription style of law enforcement where you would pay a, a little bit of money into a, a pool and then it would it was like a neighborhood watch. The members of the pool would keep an eye out at livery stables and race tracks and all these kinds of things. If any um, horses that they knew of that they had heard of had been stolen, they would watch for them and they would either Um, return them if they were found, um, or try to bring the perpetrators to justice if they could, or possibly give a partial refund if a member filed some kind of claim. Exactly how that was working, I was not able to um, find the end of that, but that was a very interesting tidbit to me um, about that vigilance association and that private subscription style of, of law enforcement.
0: Now, given the success of Old Dan's offspring, uh, were there other people who, say, purchased Old Dan's sons who tried to set up as competitors to the woods?
1: There were. um, In trolling through news archives, I found advertisements for at least seven horses throughout western New York and northern PA, uh, seven stallions that were advertised in the newspapers um, that would give the pedigree of Woods Hambletonian as part of their background. So they, uh, some of them were, were advertising for the high-priced trotting market for the racing clientele. Many of them, um, as I referred to earlier, were crossbreds that had been bred to, say, a, a Percheron mare had been brought to Old Dan, and the resulting stallion would be a, a big, heavy stallion who could also trot. And so that was that ideal dual-purpose horse. And those horses were very popular. I found a number of those uh, scattered around the region with interesting descriptions.
0: Now, we've talked about some of the owners and some of the horses, uh, but uh, with harness racing, you have the drivers as well. And one of the ones you talk about was Pop Gears. Uh, who was he? Um, Pop
1: uh, Gears or, or Gears was a, a man named, um, I think his name was Edward, uh, Edward Franklin Gears, and he was from Tennessee. And he really embodied the top of the sport of the grand circuit. he He dominated he would be I, I don't someone from NASCAR that's dominating now or you know in, in a decade he His career virtually dominated the sport. He drove all the top horses, he got all the fastest records um, from the 1870s late 1870s until he died um, in. Uh, about 1924, I believe, is when he passed away and he was just um, he was at the, at the top of the at the top of the heap and he he drove uh, a couple of, of horses that came from the woods. In the Nightingale chapter he he had developed that mare uh, into her best peak performance. and so he was definitely one of those, um, hard-working men that rode all around our nation with a, a couple of boxcars full of horses and, and just um, really embodied what the top of that sport was like for at
0: least 40 years. So uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, life at the racetrack. Uh, if we went to spend some time at the, at the racetrack during this time period, uh, what would that experience be like?
1: I've had only the benefit of of going a a little bit in my own life and and partly to research. So um, life at the racetrack um, during the I called them the heady days of the old high-wheel sulky, back when uh, Nancy Hackett was racing, for instance, in the 1870s when there was a lot of gambling and the sulkies had the big, huge uh, wheels that you sometimes see in people's yards as decoration. These wheels were um, maybe four or five feet in diameter, big uh, big old uh, iron and wooden wheeled sulkies. So the, the racetrack was really a very interesting place, a very vibrant place. Um, for instance, in Buffalo, sometimes the papers, which they may have exaggerated in the, in the news columns, but they would say there might be 40,000 people in the stands at um, the Buffalo Driving Park on a weekend. That's a lot of people back in, in that day. That It sounds like a lot of people, uh, you know, in, in one place. Um, Beaver Stadium notwithstanding, but um, they, they were pretty busy places, and um, they could be also very raucous. And some of the racetracks even had a special section um, where unescorted ladies could sit and not have to worry about, you know, being harassed or overhearing coarse conversation. Um, so there, there were very vibrant places where there were all kinds of characters, from the very rich like the Vanderbilts to, you know, the very, the very poor.
0: Now, in horse racing, you also have trainers, and what, one of the key figures you talked about was William Snow. You say he was one of the top horse trainers of this period. Well, what was unique about him?
1: William Snow um, was, was interesting uh, to me, and I felt that he was very worthy of putting in my story because he originated from western New York State, very, very rural New York State. Um, in a place called uh, Whitesville or Hornell. And that is in uh, Allegheny County. And uh, Western New York State is, is very um, deep countryside. <laughs> so when you go north into Buffalo and Rochester, you're into more uh, urban. But the, the stretch of Western New York State between the PA border and, and Buffalo and Rochester is very, very country It's very rural. And so for a man uh, to rise to his caliber of performance, again, around the turn of the century, around 1906, 1908, he was rising to the top of the sport. And, and he was from um, a town called, you know, this little town called Whitesville. Um, where many of the wood horses um, also found ownership there. So he raced, he drove and and raced many of the horses um, that came from the woods place.
0: Now we've talked about some of the horses that were very successful, uh, but not all of the offspring of old Dan were were successful. One uh, was called Scapegoat, Uh, he seemed to be a bit rebellious.
1: Right. Scapegoat, um, scapegoat was a gelding who made a really, really, um, perfect foil to all of the other, um, stellar siblings that he had. Um, scapegoat was, was bred at this very, um, wonderful, um, the heart of, of standard bread production farms in Buffalo, New York, um, which was owned by a, a very wealthy man. And, um, so Scapegoat was was bred from the same uh, line that um, many of the other great uh, horses that came from Woods Hambletonian were bred from. He was a full uh, sibling to one of the most uh, well-known mares named Nightingale. But Scapegoat had a different, um, he had a different destiny from the beginning. And um, Pop Geers, who is the driver at the top of the, at the top of the sports that we talked about, Pop Giers, um tried to train Scapegoat. Um, and from the beginning, Scapegoat did not want to cooperate. And he would uh, do a number of, of really ugly and dangerous tricks. Um, and Pop gears said he just did not like him. He couldn't trust him. He said to one of the sports writers that he had a face just like a convict. and. Um when, when Pop Gears finally had it with him, they, the, the farm that Pop Gears worked for, they let him go um, very cheaply. And he added insult to their injury by doing really well under his new owner <laughs> and ending up winning um, and making it into the record books, both for pacing and for trotting. And he lived to be a, a pretty old horse, um, and he, he did really well in his later years. Even though his start with the the best trainer um, by many accounts was a rough one. So he made a really interesting um, sort of um, a bad boy um, image.
0: After old Dan died, did the Woods Brothers continue breeding horses? Did they have success within anyone else?
1: They they gave it up. Um, Horses um, fell from their um, family. Uh, sideline financially. Um, At the time, the horse passed away. Um, They were already moving um, on the farm where they lived. They were already moving uh, heavily into cash crops of tobacco, um, which was a very lucrative um, cash crop for them during that time. And they were moving heavily into tobacco, and they they were doing other things. So it seemed as though they still kept some horses for riding and driving, but by the time the horse died, which was in 1889, um, they were moving on to other things, mostly tobacco and dairy. They were shipping their milk uh, by that time to creameries uh, uh, and they had access to the railroad. So they they, they didn't continue with the
0: sport. Now, is their farm still a working farm?
1: It is. Um, the, the main core of the acreage that Oliver Wood uh, purchased when he came um, in 1861 uh, was designated as a Pennsylvania Century Farm in the 1970s, um, and it, it still is a working farm. It now is a um, crop farm and um, grain farm and beef uh, so there is no dairy. There are a couple of uh, horses. There are, I think, five horses that live there now, um, just for riding. Um, there is no one in the Wood family there at that farm that's into harnesses, uh, harness racing. But they ride in the Western cowboy style um, to check their beef cattle.
0: Now, you mentioned the 1890s as the, the zenith of uh, this type of harness racing. Uh, what happened after that?
1: Uh, around 1890 was um, maybe the peak in many ways. In 1892, um, a man developed a a sulky that had a smaller pneumatic, like a bicycle wheel. So by 1890, um, the records began to change. So the sport changed a lot in 1892 when the pneumatic tires um, changed all of the the times. It changed, uh, it really changed the game, really, of horse racing um, when that pneumatic tire, Sulky, uh, came into being. So the sport changed, but people were also drawn in a multitude of different directions in the 1890s. There was just more affluence everywhere. People began to ride bicycles. Baseball was coming on, football was coming on. Um, People were traveling more. They had more money, more leisure time. And then, um, probably uh, by the time that World War I came around and the motor car begins to take a hold. Um, by, by the end of the war, even the, the country places like um, Tioga County, people were getting motor cars in really, really larger numbers. So once, once the motor cars came and the other uh, competition uh, to the ho- horse racing sport really kind of started to change American life.
0: Uh, which of uh, when you look at the offspring of old Dan, wh- which one was the last of the of the uh, winners?:
1: The last uh, of the winners that I include with this story is um, is a colt named Chilcoot um, and he he ended up in Canada, but he followed the the line of. Um, his um, I have to think about now. <laughs> Chilcoot went, um, he was bred in Kentucky uh, from some of those Kentucky people who became enamored with the wood bloodline of horses. And um, so they sold mares to Kentucky, and they had uh, a really good um, stallion uh, named Chilcoot. And he repeated a really, really awesome feat, which was called the Tartar Oak Stakes. And in 1918, I believe it was 1918, he won this really big race called the Tartar Oak Stakes in Connecticut. And um, he, he went on to have a very successful career as a stud horse, um, and he made it into the Canadian Horse Racing Hall of Fame. And I believe he was inducted up there in 1975, and um, he... He had a a nice career and finished his life up there as a, a pretty popular stud horse of trotting horses, sire, I should say sire of trotting horses in Canada.
0: Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Ellen Williams. She is the author of the book, Out of the Woods, From Deerfield to the Grand Circuit. Thank you for speaking with me.
1: Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to a
0: podcast of
1: PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.